From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. One, two, check, test, one, two, check, one, two, check, one, two, check. 15-minute call, 15 minutes until showtime, 15-minute call. Wow. I mean, you know, people used to people used to say, you know, you'd come to San Francisco and you'd go take a cable car, go to the wharf and get a loaf of French bread, and you'd come to see Beach Bucket Yeah. You know, is that almost mentioned in all in the same breath? You're listening to the Date Book Podcast, and this is part two of Babylon Gone our series about Beach Blanket Babylon. The show is ending performances on New Year's Eve after 45 years. I'm Annie Weinstein. I'm Peter Hartlob. I'm Lily Janik. And that was Steve Salgo, the show's trumpeter of 34 years. Here is its stage manager, John Camiani, on the first time he saw the show at the Savoy Tivoli, a San Francisco bar, in 1974. She was in it, but a bunch of my friends said, hey, we're going to go see this wacko show that's at the Savoy in North Beach. Uh, Why don't you come along? So I did, and at that time, I thought it was a bunch of wackos jumping up and down and throwing sand at each other and singing stupid songs with dumb things on their head. (laughs) And I was right! One of our biggest struggles in sitting down to record this podcast was thinking about how we were going to describe Beach Blanket Babylon, its silliness, its sense of chaos, but also the professionalism and talent of its artists and crew within that chaos, its camaraderie. So we talked to John, the stage manager, who's the company's longest serving employee. He has nearly 41 years at Beach Blanket under his belt. He retired shortly before the show announced it was closing, but then came back from retirement to stage manage the show until it closed. Anyway, we were sitting with him in Club Fugazi a couple of hours before a performance, and we were struck by his ability to encapsulate what Beach Blanket is all about in a single, the show must go on story. It takes place just a year into his tenure. And... Uh, I was backstage pulling flats with my assistant on stage left, and I was on stage right. We opened the flats. She went out on stage and started singing a song. And as we closed the flats behind her, one of them jumped off the track that it's on. And I had, and I thought, this is going to be a nightmare if I don't get it fixed. So I said to my assistant, grab the ladder out of the bathroom and bring it here. We have to fix this before she exits. And I only had like two and a half or three minutes worth of the song and maybe a little bit of dialogue before I would have to open it, and it wouldn't open if it's not on the track because it was it was jammed, you know, kind of uh, at an awkward angle. So, so John fell from the ladder and dislocated his kneecap, but he didn't know what his injury was at the time. Uh, I said, uh, "I think I broke my leg. I can't I can't fix this." So Shelley Work, uh, one of the actresses, grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and pulled me through the uh, the back uh, scenery, and I said. 
you got to open this flat no matter I don't care what you do you got to open the flat because Elizabeth is going to run into it with her big fat hat on and so I was lying on the floor backstage calling out the queue you know I counted it out three two one pull they opened the flat and she came off and then they closed the flat behind her and then they opened the back flat and I was still lying there on the floor So they got Elizabeth out safely, but there was still the trouble of what to do with John lying there on the floor. And I told them when they called the paramedics, don't bring them through the theater because that's going to freak people out. Bring them through the basement and they can come up the back stairs. So they did that. The show must go on. The show must go on, by God, you know, and I didn't want it to die on my on my watch. And And the paramedics said they couldn't get John out of the backstage door on their own. They still wanted to go through the audience. John said, no way. So they called the fire department, which is about two blocks away. So we had four firemen and two paramedics. <laughs> and as they started carrying me uh, down the stairs, um, six tap dancing Miss Piggies came dancing off stage. <laughs> can, you, can you just visualize that? And I said, wow, this is just a very beach blanket moment. <laughs> and and it was. And so the they, firemen and, must have looked like they were part of the show. Uh, well, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, who's to say they weren't? You know? <laughs> I mean, they could have been if they had dragged me out through the house. Everyone's favorite theater story subgenre is a the show must go on story. Are you kidding? I got a, I got a million of them. <laughs> That's Renee Lubin, the show's longest-serving performer. She's remembering a performance from before Snow White was in the show. And like our last one, this features John, the stage manager, and the latter. Back then, we had Dorothy instead of Snow White. Oh, this is going way back. Yeah, we're going back a few years. And she was flying on the foy. And as she came over the audience and she came back, she got stuck. <laughs> she got stuck. And she was, st- she was on the rope waving, <laughs> waving at people. It took forever. So finally, John had to make an announcement and said, due to, <laughs> due to things beyond our control, we're going to have to blah, 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 whatever it is. So he, he comes out. He gets out the ladder. The audience is clapping and laughing the whole time. She's dangling by a string. He goes up the ladder and gets her down and brings her down, and the audience just gives him a standing ovation. So, I mean, yeah, the show must go. And then after that, the show went on. And this whole zany energy, this whole crazy atmosphere, came from the one-of-a-kind brain of Steve Silver, the show's creator. Silver already had a company called Rent a Freak, where you could hire people in ridiculous costumes on, say, roller skates, to show up to your parties. One night in 1973, he and some friends were out to dinner on Union Street, and they spontaneously started singing along with a street musician, drawing a crowd. Steve and his crew ran back to his place to grab the Rent-A-Freak costumes. That night, he wrote their first show in a VW van on the way back. In 30 minutes of performing on the street, they made $20. They came back the next night and made 85 Eventually, the street crowds got so big that they had to bring the show inside. And the rest is history. 
Steve died of complications related to AIDS in 1995, but his vision continues to shape the show. That's due to the leadership of Joe Schumann Silver, Steve Silver's widow. In the almost 25 years that she's run the show after his death, she's been firm about not deviating from his vision. His vision was electric. In our interviews, cast members and crew described Steve as a whirling dervish and a man with a cartoon brain. Here's Renee on the experience of auditioning for Steve back in the 80s. I just know that back then, Steve entertained all types of acts. People came with pets. People came on skates. There were, there were just some strange things. I remember an audition where there was a guy skating across this stage. And I was watching like, what is he doing? But I mean, it was a wacky show and it was zany, so you'd never know. I mean, and who would know that years later I was in the show and we had two girls on skates. You <laughs> there know, you go. Playing Nancy Kerrigan and, <laughs> you know, the whole bit with the, the whole uh, fight backstage. Tanya Harding? Yeah, Tanya Harding. So who, you <laughs> never know. You never know. You know, everyone running around like a chicken with a head cut off because it was pretty frenetic backstage. I mean, you've got Steve giving uh, dialogue changes to the girls in between shows and they're readjusting their makeup with dialogue taped to the mirror as they're trying to reapply makeup and they've got new lines going in we've got another solo going in and another uh, existing solo is going to go up or down a half step or a third or whatever so it was um, it was crazy so you had to have Steve's Steve Silver's concept which was to give performers a platform to do what they loved uh, in a manner that was wacky and slightly off, which was San Francisco. You don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where fashion sits? Putin! On there was a time when if you were a celebrity, you saw Beach Blanket. And not just if you were already in San Francisco. Famous people flew up from L.A. and beyond just to see the show. You, you had people like Jimmy Stewart, Clint Eastwood, Tony Bennett, Beverly Sills. Um, I could go on. I, I could just recite for 20 minutes on the names of people that came. Camilla and Charles, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and um, Larry Hagman, and his mother, Mary Martin, and, and I'm, my favorite, Sidney Poitier. Um, Sidney Poitier uh, came to the show and watched it and I was really impressed with him because he came backstage and part of my job when we have a VIP to come backstage I stand at the door and welcome them and I say Mr. Poitier welcome to the beach hope you enjoyed the show and he looked me in the eye looked me in the eye shook my hand and said John that was a great show I had a really good time and I mean just the recognition you know, because a lot of the VIPs are, you know, they want to go back there and talk to the cast, and that's fine. That's you know, if they're if they're an actor, that's you know, that's their connection. But just the fact that he took the time to to stop at the door and say, "I had a really great time," and you know, and look me in the eye, it was kind of like uh, I feel special, you know, that he did that. Please don't twerk. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But some of the most meaningful connections made at Beach Blanket over the years have had nothing to do with Hollywood stars. Steve Salgo met his wife, Val Diamond, at the show. It's been 10 years since Diamond, known for her powerful voice and charismatic stage presence, left the show, but she remains its best-known performer. Diamond's been succeeded by the hilarious Tammy Nelson, who recently celebrated her 25th anniversary with the show. And then there's Renee, who had a very unique method of getting the attention of potential suitors. Here's how she met her now husband of 27 years. Back in the day, I was a fine little thing. So um, You still are. I Thank you. Um, so back in the day, when I was single, I used to see gentlemen in the audience. And I, if I saw them before the show, I'd send them a note. And we used to have a, uh, next door used to be an old Italian restaurant called Caps. That was another historic place that's no longer here. And I used to always say, um, if you'd like to join Miss Lubin for a drink after the show, she'll meet you at Caps. You're like a movie star. They were always there, girl. <laughs> they were always there. So um, this one time, um, I was on stage, but I missed it. I came on stage, and I saw, there's a nice-looking guy out there. I wonder if he looks like a teddy bear. I wonder if he's as nice as he looks. And I thought, I'll never meet him. Stepped out under the awning, and who's coming down the, group, coming down the street but that group with the teddy bear that I just saw in the audience. And they said, hey, hey, we saw the show. Um, come and have a drink with us. And I was like, well, I'll go sit with them, but I'm not going to have another drink. So I sat there, and before the evening was over, um, found out that um, he was new to the area, and the group that he was with, that was his team. He was their boss, and he invited me out. And I said, well, we'll see, and then rest is history. Next note here comes So what did you like about the theater world? I think the, the, the fact that everybody is accepted for who they are. And I, I think that was a big thing to me, that, uh, that people could be whoever they really are in real life, and then they could do these different characters, and they're accepted by everybody. And I think that's, I think that's a big thing. Theater is life. You know, we we mirror life images, and uh, I think people who are in the theater uh, know that, and they that's how they get along with everybody. Not everybody gets along, but you know, it's it's just the basic principle uh, that uh, theater is life, and everybody is accepted there. Hmm. And I like that. It was awful to have to ask these cast and crew members about their thoughts on saying goodbye to the show. 
their ideas on what's next in their careers. Santry already has another gig. He left Beach Blanket to design wigs for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child at the Curran. There were times asking these questions when I could feel these folks, if not getting defensive or bristling exactly, then maybe leaning back a little, and rightfully so. Because since it's Beach Blanket, I'm not just asking them about their professional lives. I'm asking them about their homes, their families. Here's Steve Salgo reminiscing on the night he found out the show was closing. They still had to perform a show that night. I give the cast an enormous amount of credit for that show that night because it took reaching down deep, like you said, to pull that off. I mean, we were, you know, it was a meeting. We had to go out, get a cup of coffee, collect our thoughts, come back, and then put the show on that night. And it was probably one of the more difficult shows to, to play. I, I would say playing, playing the show after Steve died was the most difficult show for me. But it was, you know, those moments are, you know, uh, life's moments. And so you just have to kind of weather, weather it and make the best. Oh, we were all surprised. That was, that, that was a surprise. That wasn't something anybody, you know, ever projected or even thought about. I mean, even if even if numbers were low, it wasn't something that was um, even fathomable that this show would ever close. So I tell my musician friends, you know, because uh, we we end the show every night in San Francisco, and this, you know, it's the key of D, same key. So I joke with my friends, and I say, "You want to make me cry and have a meltdown? I play San Francisco in the key of D for over twelve thousand performances. Ask me to play it in a different key." And it'll probably make me start weeping and breaking down. I, I can do it, but that's my attempt at a feeble joke. You know, it's, you just get used to, yeah. you know, playing the same stuff. Sad. I don't know what to say. Just sad. I can't even imagine. I, I, th- I think the sad part to me is that there are people who still have never seen the show, and that's sad. That's sad. There'll never be anything like it. Ever. The Daybook Podcast is produced by Peter Hartlob, Lily Janik, and Annie Weinstein. Supervising producers are King Kaufman, Kitty Morgan, and Tim O'Rourke. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is courtesy Beach Blanket Babylon. And we also played Shades of Spring by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this podcast, support our work and subscribe at www.sfchronicle.com where you can read more Beach Blanket Babylon stories and columns.